dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, dynamic voices for a diverse church powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me as always is the president of the Reformed African American Network, Jamar Tisby. Jamar, what's going on, brother? Man, super excited. Always excited about these episodes, but thrilled about our guest today who can lend some really helpful and timely insight, I think. And so, uh, yeah, it's going to be a good one. Yes, we are very excited about our guest. Right before we introduce him, we want to remind you guys that if you have not joined our private Pass the Mic Facebook group, you need to do that. You need to go to Facebook.com, search Pass the Mic, and request to get into the group. We'll let you in, and you will experience some phenomenal conversation. We also want you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and also the Satchel app. And if you could also rate and review the podcast, that would be excellent as well. And we want you to join us in March, 16th through the 18th, for the Just Gospel Conference, right, Jamar? I'm, I'm really excited about that. Oh, it's going to be a it's going to be a family reunion. I love these type <laughs> of events. Um, you know, it's one of those things where you're like, oh, you're going, you're going, you're going to exactly. So, <laughs> got a whole it's gonna crew. It's going to be a ton of fun. Got, got a whole crew got a going. Got a whole crew going. Might be some podcast recordings. Might be some some interviews. You never know. Yeah, we're going to have the, pretty much the full PTM squad. We're sorry we're going to miss Elodie. There are uh, fantastic, um, amazing, intelligent, talented, skilled, yes. wisdom-wise uh, uh, managing editor. But the rest of us will be there holding it down. So hope hope to see you there. And if not, definitely look for some content coming out from that. Also just want to give some general announcements and reminders. Most of our blog posts come from listeners like you or visitors to the website. And so we are always looking for new content. Uh, We're recording this in March, which has been designated Women's History Month, so we'd love some content um, around that subject as well. And if you have an idea, even if it's just a couple sentences you want to pitch to us, or even if you have a full blog post ready to go, please email at submit at rannetwork.org, submit at rannetwork.org. Also, we survive on the generosity of listeners like you and we folks sure do. who visit that's the how, That's how we making it. <laughs> we don't so make it if, if y'all not generous. I'm telling you, uh, you know, a lot of times we sort of trip over the complexity of, oh, how do I support a good cause? Well, you know what? It's simple, but it's never old is financial support. And so if you go to uh, any of the links to this podcast that are on rannetwork.org. When we, we post it every week, there's going to be a link there to donate. Or if you go to rannetwork.org, up in the top menu bar, there's a donate button and you can help us out there. You can even go to our Twitter feed and pin to the top of the page as a link. So we would appreciate your support and shout out to the many folks who have already donated financially and supported us. We can't do it without you. And thank you so much. Absolutely. Now, Jamar, I can't keep them in suspense any longer. We have to introduce our guest. It is Dr. Jarvis Williams. He is a voice that you are probably very familiar with, either his uh, him speaking on the podcast, him speaking in other places. He is, a prof- he is a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And of course, he is one of our top contributors to the Reformed African American Network. He has written numerous books, including One New Man, The Cross and Racial Reconciliation in Pauline Theology, uh, For Whom Did Christ Die? The Extent of the Atonement in Paul's Theology. He was involved in that as well. And he has a new book coming out 
entitled Removing the Stain of Racism from the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, Diverse African-American Voices. He is the co-editor of that book. It will be out in June. You can go to Amazon.com right now, which you should, and pre-order that. Dr. Williams, thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you for having me. Always a privilege. First question, who, who came up with the title for that? Because that is a very <laughs> provocative and interesting title. You stole my question, Jamar. Jamar, you stole oh, my man, question. Oh, man, sorry. I was just, like, eager and excited. Removing the stain of racism. Yeah, that's a good question. My, uh, my co-editor and good friend and colleague, Dr. Kevin Jones, he is a, uh, an associate professor or assistant professor of, of education at the Boys College, which is the undergraduate program of the seminary. And after a, a meeting one day on campus, uh, Kevin approached me and, and said, we ought to consider writing a or editing a book called Removing the Stain of Racism from the SBC. And I think he got that idea from, from a statement that was made by our president, actually, uh, regarding President Mueller, regarding um, a, a need for, for Southern Baptist and for our institution to, uh, to, to think about how we can can rectify and go forward in the area of racial relations. And I think he used the word stain in talking about the, uh, some of the challenges that we, we've had historically with regard to race in the SBC. And, and Kevin took that word and thought it would be helpful for us to edit a book called Removing the Stain of Racism from, from the SBC. So, so one of the, I think, significant uh, uh, reasons for the, the book is uh, Dr. Moeller, our president, preached a very powerful sermon a couple years ago in chapel regarding racial reconciliation. And out of that, really, we get the, uh, the book that we're coming out with in June. Wow, that, that is very interesting. Now, for those who are unfamiliar, and, and I have to admit, I didn't grow up in a denominational church context. So sometimes when Jamar is talking about the PCA or other people are talking about the SBC, <laughs> I'm kind of lost in translation. I'm, I'm a little familiar with it, a little familiar with some of the history. But for those like me who are a little bit unfamiliar, didn't grow up in the context, what is the history of the SBC and why would we say that there is a stain of racism there? Yeah, that's a good question. I think when you think about the evangelical movement in general in the United States, I think racism is closely connected to it. And I think there are some denominations that are more famous for racism than others. And I think the Southern Baptist Convention is one of those denominations. I mean, virtually every denomination had racism in it, but I think the SBC is, is most famous because it's the largest. And we were birthed, I think, as a denomination, in part, in my view, because of slavery. I mean, one of the issues in 1845 was, can missionaries have slaves or not? And the Northern Baptists said no, and the Southern Baptists said yes, and hence you get the uh, the split from uh, into Northern versus Southern Baptists. And so, so one of the reasons why we think there is a historical stain of racism in the SBC is because of that dark stain of racism, which touches every aspect, I think, of, of Protestantism in America. And then as a result of that, I think that there are, are examples in our denomination, as well as in the larger evangelical community, where the stain, or maybe we should say it this way, the effects of that stain still remain. I think we still have uh, issues of racism in, in churches. I think we still have issues of, of racism in, uh, in institutions that are Christian. And so for, for our denomination, the stain of racism goes all the way back to slavery. Now, I want to speak positively here and say, certainly, there has been much progress made mm -hmm. 
in every evangelical denomination, and certainly in, in the SBC. I mean, again, I'm sitting here talking to you right now as an African-American about a book that I co-edited regarding removing the state of racism in the SBC. I think that is a beautiful picture of progress in, in our denomination. And yet we still have these very real issues of, of racism that affect us in our denomination as it does uh, in our country. And your chapter entitled Biblical Steps Toward Removing the Stain of Racism from the Southern Baptist Convention was really interesting. You talk a little bit about your, your personal background, which, which we've gone into in a previous Pass the Mic episode. So I encourage you, if you're listening, go to Pass the Mic on the web, search our archives for Dr. Jarvis Williams. We've had him on a couple of times and hear his, his backstory. But you also give us some context for the term race. And I'm wondering how you respond when people say, well, race isn't a biblical term that's just a social construct and we shouldn't use it or it's or it's not real. I mean, is there truth to that or, or, or how do you nuance it? And you talk a little bit about that in the chapter. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that today. Yes, I, I think uh, race it has always been a social construct, both in the biblical world <clears throat> and also in the modern world. I think the, the greatest difference perhaps between the category of race in the biblical world and the category of race in the modern world is, is that the modern word is connected to uh, biological inferiority and mm-hmm. pseudoscience uh, and, and arguments were made for the, pur- uh, for the purpose of dehumanizing uh, certain groups, particularly blacks, and, and prioritizing uh, another race over that group based on perceived racial inferiorities that were attached to someone's biology or ontology. None of that is what you find in the biblical world. Yet, I would argue, and other scholars have argued this in in much more detail, that the category of race exists in the biblical world. So so you have uh, these terms like ethnos that pops up in different parts of the the Bible, the New Testament, and also in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And then the word ganos, which is, a, is another word. Ethnos is often translated Gentile or nation, and ganos is often translated as race or kind in the biblical material. So, for example, when, when Peter in 1 Peter 2.9 talks about Christianity, he calls it a new, a, a chosen race, a chosen mm-hmm. ganos. Right. So what, what I've tried to argue is, is that no... The word race does not mean the same thing in the biblical world as it does in the modern world. But the category of otherness does exist. And even though the category of otherness, which we would call race, in the biblical world is not associated to one's biological inferiority for the purpose of racial hierarchy, Mm -hmm. you see numerous examples of ethnic othering in the biblical world. And one very important, or two very important books, I think, that your readers or your, your listeners might be interested in, in, in reading would be, uh, number one, a book written by a classical scholar called Benjamin Isaac. And it's a five to six hundred page book uh, talking about the invention of racism in classical antiquity, in which this particular author goes through numerous classical texts, texts like Thucydides and Sophocles and other texts, in which he, from which he argues that the ancient conception of, of race and racism 
actually laid the groundwork for the modern construction of race and racism. Hmm. He doesn't argue that they're one and the same, but he does argue that the classical world laid the foundation for the modern world. And then another monograph, which is more important with respect to the New Testament material, is a, is a book written by Love L. Sacrest called A Former Jew, Paul and the Dialectics of Race. And in that particular monograph, Love surveys about 5,000 ancient texts, both hmm. secular texts as well as Jewish and Christian texts, to make the argument, in part, making the argument that race as a concept did in fact exist in the biblical world, hmm. while also showing that there are distinctions between the ancient concept and the modern concept of race. So those are some things I would say in response to those who want to dismiss the word altogether. One final mark, remark, though, I, I would also want to make sure that when I'm talking about race, interacting with people about race, that I'm making it clear that race functions differently in different social contexts in the, in the modern world and also in the ancient world. So that when I want to offer biblical solutions to racial reconciliation, we must make it very clear that we're talking about two different things in the Bible when we're talking about race and in the modern world when we talk about race. Hmm, that's very helpful. Now, it, kind of leading from that, once we talk about and establish that there is some difference between these racial categories, but yet these still exist, how do we identify and how did you in, in the book identify what racism actually is? Because I think that's maybe the, the difficulty that we get into. Most people would agree racism is bad, but then the, the great divide is what is it? What does it look like? What does it mean to yeah. be racist, quote unquote, or, or commit racialized acts? So explain yeah. how yeah. you even analyze what racism looks like, especially in a denomination like the SBC. Yeah, that's a very, very good question. Well, in the book, we have a couple of chapters that are devoted specifically to the historical question of, of race and racism. And one of those chapters uh, is written by my good friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Matthew J. Hall. Matthew wrote a book, uh, wrote a chapter in the, in the book called Historical Causes of the Stain of Racism in the Southern Baptist Convention. He basically traces uh, race and racism uh, in in its in its from its inception to its to its impact in the denomination. In my chapter, I spend most of my time dealing with biblical steps forward, but I also spend a little bit of time talking about some of the historical origins of race and racism. So, so if in fact race is a category in the modern world that was created for the purpose of racial hierarchy in order to dehumanize uh, people because of fictive and perceived uh, inferiorities and for the purpose of placing another group of people over those, uh, those people uh, because of perceived uh, biological superiorities, then racism flows out of that particular construct. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, so, so then... One of the features, I think, to racism is is this idea that a group of people are categorized with the same deficiencies because they are part of that group, and that those deficiencies pertain to intellectual deficiencies mm -hmm. as well as moral deficiencies, and that there's no 
ability for any individual within that group to be different from the larger group. Hmm. So statements like, uh, questions like, why do black people act that way? Right? That's a racist question, because it assumes hmm. that all black people have a, have a set of virtues or vices that they all possess without the ability of anybody within that group to break out of that particular caricature. Hmm. So, so then, when you begin to import that racist premise in society that, that shows itself up in racialized ways, such as economic exploitation or educational exploitation or uh, suspicion with respect to one's intellectual capacity uh, to, to be able to contribute anything good or useful to the evangelical movement. So then, so then in my view, that to talk about racialization within a, a denominational context or within a Christian context, sometimes that shows up by means of a particular group of people, say in our context, uh, African-Americans, not being given the opportunity because they're viewed with suspicion because they're part of a perceived intellectually inferior group. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, both so from then, a theoretical and experiential standpoint. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Go yes, on. Yes. Go on. So, so when we think about racism, and, and I try to state this, state this in my chapter, it's not simply that it's this overt terror that is brought upon uh, African Americans from majority culture, and it's not simply the use of the N word or racist uh, slurs, but racism also shows itself up by means of implicit biases, by means of, of wanting black and brown faces, but not wanting black and brown voices. On, it also man. shows up when you don't have uh, opportunities that are shared with vetted, proven black and brown people, but they're passed over uh, by uh, because opportunities are given to people who are part of the majority culture who have not been proven and vetted. I think racism can show itself up in those ways as well, denominationally. So there's one quote in there in in your chapter in particular. I'd love for you to unpack and just to tell you, just to show you how good this this whole book and and this chapter is. This is in a footnote. It's so funny. It is in a footnote, but he says, excluding horizontal aspects of the gospel from any definition of the gospel and reducing them to an implication of the gospel, open the door wide, so wide, Southern Baptists can still feel the breeze for, for Southern Baptists to push matters of race out the gospel door of the house and reserve them to the shed of social issues. Um, now, that is part of a larger discussion about sort of a truncated gospel. Can you talk about that, uh, the, the ways that the, quote, gospel is understood and perhaps in um, an insufficient or, or a flawed way? Yeah, it's good. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Yeah, I've been a Christian for 21 years, and I've been a Southern Baptist for those entire 21 years, and obviously I've therefore been an evangelical for those 21 years. And often, when you hear evangelical Christians talk about the gospel, the accent is virtually always placed upon individual 
salvation, one's uh, need to become right with God and have one's sins forgiven by faith in Jesus. And I would be the first person in the room to say, yes, absolutely, that the gospel is about justification by faith and one's individual sins being forgiven. But I would also argue that the gospel is not only about one's vertical relationship to God. It is about that, but the gospel is also cosmological. So, so if you look at how gospel as a word and as a category functions throughout different places in the Bible, there are different emphases made in different parts of the Bible. So when Jesus preaches in, in Mark chapter 1, he says, uh, he preaches the gospel of the kingdom of God and, and repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's the gospel, repentance and believing. But then you look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 and following, Paul talks about the gospel in terms of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But then you look at Romans, or you look at, at Galatians, Paul talks about the gospel in terms of justification by faith, as well as mentioning other features of the gospel. So one point I'm trying to press in that footnote is, is that the gospel is both vertical and it's also horizontal. Yes, it, it tells sinners, how to be made right with God by faith in Christ, but it also talks about the horizontal realities that are created by this gospel. So let's just take Galatians, for example. So if you read Galatians, you see that the gospel there is not only about justification by faith, because gospel is mentioned on numerous occasions before you get justification by faith mentioned, which doesn't pop up until 2.16. But then after justification by faith is mentioned in Galatians 2.16, you have further, I think, a further exposition about the gospel, which is the spirit-empowered age in which we now live because of God's work for us in Christ. So in Galatians, the gospel is a, is a cosmological reality that God has brought about through the finished work of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. And part of that reality is justification by faith in Christ apart from works of the law. Part of that reality is spirit-empowered obedience. So the reason why, then, you get the emphasis in chapters 3 and 4 of Galatians about living in unity with one another is because that is part of the gospel. And if the Galatians do not live, and if Jews and Gentiles don't live in spirit-empowered unity in the gospel, they are not walking in a straightforward manner in the truth of the gospel. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 and then, moreover, I would suggest, when you get to Galatians five sixteen to 21, you have Paul mentioning these vices and virtues. And he says in five sixteen, walk in the Spirit and do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And of course, he then goes on and talks about the flesh and the Spirit as uh, two, two powers that have nothing in, in common with one another. And then he makes this very powerful statement. After he mentions several vices that pertain to... I think, communal, communal factions. He uses uh, uh, language like divisions as well as uh, language regarding quarrels and, and things of that nature. He says in 521, if you walk in the flesh, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, now wait a second. You're justified by faith in Christ apart from works of the law. Oh, yes, that's exactly right. But Paul's gospel is a holistic gospel that suggests if you are not walking in the Spirit, and you're not living in Spirit-empowered obedience, in community with each other, if you're not living in harmony with each other, 
in Christ. There's no reason to believe that anyone has experienced justification by faith. So in my particular view, then, if one cuts off the horizontal aspects of the gospel and reduces those aspects to social issues, not gospel issues, they've lost some of the gospel. Because the gospel is not only about my individual Jesus moment, it's also about God doing something cosmologically to restore Hmm. in total what Adam lost. Hmm. And what Adam lost was this perfect cosmological harmony that existed, both between humanity and God, but also between humanity and humanity, and also the entire cosmos. And so now that chaos has been rectified via the cross and resurrection of Jesus, and those of us who have faith in Christ and who have the Spirit, we are living now in this inaugurated kingdom, and we're pressing toward the final eschatological kingdom, where it would be fully realized, as we're pressing forward the gospel in both word and deed in everyday real-world realities. Hmm. That's so Just good. in case y'all didn't know, Dr. Williams is also a preacher. <laughs> yeah. We just got a little taste, just a little morsel. <laughs> I mean, you, you could hear that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Now, Dr. Williams, I want to ask you a question that maybe shifts gears a little bit, because you mentioned in a recent article that you did with the Gospel Coalition, you said something very interesting. You said, it's part of a larger quote, you said evangelicals still tend to be decades behind on critical race discussions. Now, you mentioned in that article, reading a book about critical race theory, et cetera. And and for us, we've received that question a lot. You know, how do we navigate the critical race ideas without taking in all of the subsequent um, theological or sociological views without dismissing them? Or, or should we embrace them wholesale? Should we dismiss them wholesale, et cetera? So what is your perspective on that question? How do you navigate that especially recommending that people would read a book like Critical Race Theory? That's a great question. Um, the, uh, the, the one thing that, that we all need to realize, especially those of us from a Christian context, is, is that there's nothing new under the sun. Christians have been borrowing things from different disciplines uh, from, the, from the very beginning of the discipline of biblical studies. So, so Christians might think they have a purely... Christian approach to studying Scripture, but if they do a little bit of research, they might realize that some of the methods that they use have been methods that were espoused by non-Christian people at certain mm-hmm. parts of the history of biblical interpretation. So the first thing I would say is, is that we all borrow from disciplines and from fields tools that help us to understand uh, things better. So, so in terms of the biblical studies example, we, we use the method of Bible study known as the grammatical historical method of biblical exegesis. But that method is, is a, historically, that's a modernistic method. And, and modernists, generally speaking, were anti-supernatural, and they rejected the authority of Scripture. And so what Christians have done who believe the, the Bible and who have confidence in, in every claim that it makes, we've said we want to use the, the method of grammatical historical exegesis in order to help us arrive at the author's intent, but we're going to reject the conclusions of these anti-supernatural exegetes. So so the first thing I think we need to be honest about is is to say that we all use tools or things in in Bible study or in life 
that might not be inherently Christian to help us understand the world in which we live. The second thing I would say is, with respect to critical race theory, uh, absolutely. If you if you look at critical race theory and the origins of it, it's not a Christian uh, movement. It was a, a movement that was largely a, a far left and beyond um, movement that flowed out of critical legal theory. And, and so there are conclusions that are made uh, by some of the proponents of critical race theory that I would reject. Uh, you know, I, there are, are worldview assumptions that, that many within the critical race theory movement would have that I would not share. Uh, however, I would say that I can learn from anybody. And I should be willing to learn from those who can help me understand something uh, better and that can help me understand the, the race issue better, especially. So, so, for example, things like what is race in a modern experience? Well, you've gotta, you, you can't get an answer to that question by, by looking only at the biblical text, right? Because, as I've already said, Race in the biblical world and race in the modern world aren't entirely the same. So I've got to I've got to look at authors who are using the critical race categories to talk about what race is. Questions such as what is privilege, what is white privilege, what is racism, what is intersectionality, what is interest conversion convergence. These types of questions can can be answered by looking at critical race theory and what it says about race and the categories that it creates. So one reason why I, I mentioned that book is because when you're talking about race to evangelicals, I don't know if you've noticed this, quite often we don't even know what we're talking about in terms of what the discussion is. So the kinds of conversations that we're having now in the evangelical world, those conversations have been happening for years in, in, the, in, the, in the non-Christian world. And, and so, so we need to then read people with whom we would likely disagree on a host of things, who, but who are experts and specialists in the critical discussions of race, to figure out how we can enter into the conversation intelligently and then offer a gospel solution or a gospel answer to some of these questions that inevitably emerge in Christian spaces. So, so, so for example... It is, in my view, I don't think conversations about racial reconciliation are going to go very far in our evangelical churches unless we're willing to first have an honest conversation about what race is, and then have an honest conversation about what racism is, and then have an honest conversation about racialization, an honest conversation about uh, interest convergence, why it, it is difficult for some majority culture people to fight against racism because they benefit from it. And, hmm. and it doesn't serve, uh, an anti-racist posture doesn't serve the interest in at times of the majority culture. Well, we can gain insight about those kinds of conversations by reading critical race theory and then offering gospel solutions to the problems that we have because of racism and using the method and rejecting the conclusion. Does that make sense? Yes, Absolutely. that makes total sense. <laughs> That's brilliant. So many other questions on that as well. But shifting gears a little bit to the more practical side, you are in conjunction with a couple of other pastors in the process of planting a multi-ethnic church. 
which yes. in and of itself is is um, a, a, a worthy topic of discussion. But in the process of, of planting an intentionally multi-ethnic church, we just did an episode on the black church during Black History Month. What do you think is the role or is there a role of predominantly black churches, even as you sort of press forward into multi-ethnic church planting? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And I, I think I think absolutely there is a role for uh predominantly black churches or predominantly monoethnic churches from different ethnic postures. I think I think when when we think about multi-ethnic church, we, we we've got to especially those of us who are who are who are who are reformed and minorities, we we ought not to think about multi-ethnic church as something uh, to replace the black church uh, or or as something that is better than the black church or better than any other monoethnic churches. I think too often, I think minorities, not just minorities, but minorities can can be so committed to multi-ethnic church that they begin to speak about churches that are not multi-ethnic in ways that, that denigrate those churches and question their gospel witness. Now, of course, it is true that there are churches whose gospel witness should be in question when, in fact, they are radically opposed because of racist reasons to uh, reaching the people in their community. But the point I'm making here is is that uh, we ought not to think that monoethnic churches don't believe and love the gospel. And, and particularly, we ought not to think that traditional black churches, just because they're traditional black churches, that they don't love and believe and preach the gospel. So, so my vision for a multi-ethnic church flows out of a variety of things. Number one, it flows out of my own experience. I'm, I'm African-American, but also have Native American and Anglo blood flowing through my veins. My, my father was African-American. My grandfather was African-American and, and has some Native American heritage. And my grandmother, his wife, was uh, biracial, African-American, and, and, and Anglo heritage. And my wife's Hispanic. And, my, and her mother is from Nicaragua, and her father is from Costa Rica, and my son is all of the above. So, so we mm-hmm. have a lived experience of multi-ethnicity. And then secondly, it's also how I understand the gospel. The gospel, in my view, from the very beginning, it was always God's intention to do a worldwide universal work of redemption through Abraham. And it was always God's intention to bless the nations through Abraham. And Paul says in Galatians 3.8 that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you, all of the families of the earth, will be blessed. And, of course, you have other statements throughout the Bible, Jesus purchasing some from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. So that tells me, then, that God does love multi-ethnic diversity. And, and he died for some, from, Jesus died for some from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. So then thirdly, the, the multi-ethnic passion that I have have also is the context in which I live. So we're not trying to force a multi-ethnic uh, church into existence, but the very demographic in which I live in Louisville, Kentucky, allows for this kind of work. So in my community where I live, in Louisville, Louisville is a is a, a city that has around five to 600,000 people. It's a pretty diverse city, uh, and we have a large international community. 
But in my in my community where I live, we have a, a large African American demographic. We have a large Hispanic, a large South Asian demographic for for a Kentucky community. And and so in my community, we have a lot of different diversity. We also have ethnic diversity. But we also have uh, some economic diversity here as well. I mean, we're primarily it's a middle class and working class community, but we also have people who are in poverty in my in my community. And so the the desire to do this then also flows out of this this reality that we are living within a multi ethnic neighborhood. So then it will be natural, uh, insofar as this can be natural, for different people from different postures to do mm-hmm. church together because we're living in community with each other already. So what I've done is is that I have uh, intensely uh, prayed for a long time, but then also have partnered with some brothers and sisters from different ethnic groups. Right now on our church planning core team, we have about seven different nationalities. And uh, we have right now we have African-American, just a mission of African-American. We have biracial. We have uh, Korean. We have uh, Hispanic, but different kinds of Hispanic. We have Costa Rica. We have Mexican. We have Venezuelan. We also have um, uh, uh, African, and and then we have white, uh, uh, who are part of our of our core team, and we are therefore trying to say from the very outset, by our leadership, which is predominantly diverse minority, and we're praying right now for God to give us a a, a white brother to to be an elder, but right now the founding elders are primarily minority with me and a, and a Hispanic brother and a, another brother from another nationality. Uh, and we're asking God to give us a Korean elder as well as a, a white elder so that we can say from the very outset that we believe this is a natural outflow of the gospel. It takes work, it takes effort, but the gospel creates this. Hmm. Yeah, that is so great. When, when, the gospel creates it whenever the geographic location allows for it. Hmm. That is so good. Yeah. Now, Dr. Williams, I am curious, just I think our final question, unless Jamar has something else he wants to hop in with, but I'm curious whenever we get someone in on the podcast who is very familiar with these conversations, who's been in the nitty gritty, who's um, experienced both the study aspect and then also the church aspect, you're in the middle, we all are in the middle of this very tense period, both for the church, inside the church, outside of the church, what are some helpful words of wisdom that you would give to those who are pursuing justice, trying to fulfill the call of God to be reconciled, and yet at the same time resisting kind of some of the current forces that exist to continually oppress and put down uh, ethnic minorities? What is your? What are some gospel suggestions, some wise words that that we should all keep in mind as, as we're newbies to this. So what should we keep in mind as we continue to, to pursue the kingdom of God in that area? Yeah, that's a good question. Oh, that's a really good question. I, I suppose one thing that we ought to keep in mind is, is that there are occasions, uh, many occasions when our gospel identities will clash with other identities that we have, political identities, or uh, gender identity, or uh, racial identity. And so we want to make sure, I think, that as Christians who are in pursuit of reconciliation and gospel justice for all people, 
that we don't do anything to compromise our gospel identity. Because once you lose your gospel identity and, and you're perceived as as someone who has forsaken your gospel identity, it's hard to recover from that. So, so I think one thing we want to do is make sure we keep the cause of Jesus and the call of Jesus to pursue that love of neighbor at the centerpiece of what we're doing, Amen. I think. And, and, and also, we want to make sure that as we are calling people to pursue reconciled community, that part of that call also is the call to repent and believe. Because Jesus, of course, he said, love your neighbor, but he also said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes, sir. And so what, what, what we're trying to do as Christians, it has some similarities with what other justice movements might be doing. But we also have some great differences with these other movements. And one of the greatest differences, I think, is that we're calling people also to place their faith in a crucified and resurrected Jewish man who absorbed the wrath of God for sinners so that racism and all other sins would be obliterated. And so we can't ever, we can't ever lose that. And then we also, I think, secondly, would want to remember as, as, those who have a gospel identity, that there are going to be occasions where, regardless of whether you're red or yellow, black and white, rich or poor, middle class, educated or uneducated, as a Christian, that we've got to make the necessary negotiations without compromising the gospel, make the necessary social or ethnic negotiations that we might need to make for the sake of uh, promoting gospel justice. Let me give you one example of what I mean. Uh, one, for example, might be in a privileged posture, uh, racially or economically, but because one is compelled by the gospel to care about justice and to care about gospel justice and love of neighbor, the, the one who is in the position of, of social privilege or racial privilege might decide that she or he will voluntarily identify with the marginalized for the purpose of promoting gospel justice or racial justice. And it could be something mm. as simple as this. A, a, a white family becoming part of a minority-led, multi-ethnic church that wants to reach diverse minorities in the community as well as marginalized white people in the community. And we cannot forget, by the way, that white brothers and sisters, especially if they're Christians, have an identity of marginalization as well, but poor white people also are marginalized in certain parts of society. Yes. And so when a person who has privilege chooses to identify with the marginalized by virtue of being part of a church that reaches out to the marginalized and seeks to serve the marginalized, that's a way that that, that person, I think, is making the necessary negotiations that the gospel calls them to make for the sake of promoting gospel justice for all people. So a couple of things I, I would I would say. That is so helpful, Dr. Williams. Thank you so much for joining us today. I have been encouraged and, and really enlightened by your comments. Where can people keep up with you? You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. J.J. Williams. And also weekly, I write a piece for RAN on Thursday mornings. Uh, yes. Usually the, the pieces focus on race-related issues. 
but I try to write on some different issues as well. Uh, so keep an eye out for my weekly posting on Reform African American Network. And uh, it's pretty much it. I'm not a Facebook guy. I have no desire to get on Facebook, although <laughs> I keep being told I need to. But I'm, I think I'm, I'm going to just stick with the Twitter uh, for now. <laughs> you are a great Twitter follow, Dr. Williams. Uh, you are <laughs> very, you. very good on Twitter. So if you stay there, I'm not complaining. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And thank you so much. Your weekly posts are fantastic. I encourage folks to check out his most recent one, which is which is on biblical interpretation and uh, paying attention to our own identities and our own cultural context as we do biblical interpretation. So that's a whole other podcast, but you're putting out great writings. This mm-hmm. Pick up this book. We'll have a link on the show notes for this show, Removing the Stain of Racism from the SBC. Dr. Williams, thank you so much for your scholarship and your labors and your heart for Christ and, and to spread that afar through your writings and your speaking and your teaching. Thank you. I appreciate you, brothers, very much. Well, thank you all for joining us, and we'll see you soon on the next Pass Pass the the Mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit Pottery.com. That's P-O-D-A-S-T-E-R-Y dot com.